because people have an impression that dancing is the extreme version of dancing. It's a full facial beard, isn't it? You're listening to The Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. John, welcome to another episode of The Occupational Philosophers. Let's cut straight to it. What's caught your eye this week? Well, hello, Simon, again. What's caught my eye has been um, aphorisms. So I came across it. I was listening to something and somebody was talking in a philosophy podcast about aphorisms, and I got intensely interested in those, that idea that the aphorisms, that concise a memorable expression of some general truth or principle, and that's often the thing that gets remembered and handed down generation to generation. So, uh, or stuck on motivational posters that you then see in corporate offices up and down the land as well. So, yeah, so uh, such as, let's see, you might know these. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. There you go. And that was Good old Aristotle, one of the Greek heavyweights again. I do like my Greek heavyweights. Uh, All I know is that I know nothing. That's another one. Any ideas on that one, Simon? No, no. Plato, maybe, possibly? It it was Socrates. You weren't far off there. Yeah, my dad used to say it all the time, actually. He was quite a sort of uh, chin stroker himself, I think. Okay. um, My favourite at the moment, though, is (laughs) I might have seen this on the back of a matchbox or something but think positively don't say i might fail say i will fail that that sounds like something my wife's old boss would say when she was worked for a very famous florist in london and I'm her sure boss was, uh, it might, might have been pre-socratic or something like that i'm not sure but yeah also it's anonymous <laughs> it's, it's anonymous it is anonymous yeah my favorite one is from the master of philosophy Bruce Lee and or something along the lines of there is no try one must do or something do you know that one or I think that's Yoda I think you're thinking of Yoda. okay right. <laughs> he's my other favorite uh, <laughs> what, what about so that's me what about you Simon what's been catching your eye this week well this was a couple of weeks ago at a conference and this is called leadership lessons from a dancing guy and I was like the afternoon session, so I was sort of watching the session before me and the lady brought this um, video up and it's of a guy who's essentially, like, we've been to a lot of festivals together and a guy is just sort of dancing by himself in some really short shorts, just being quite leery. And I thought, and I've seen it before, thinking, well, oh, what a great festival that is. But all of it, it's talked over the top about how there's this leadership lessons. And all of a sudden, he's just dancing like a bit of a moon unit in the field, having a great time. Someone runs over and they sort of start tumbling together and dancing. And then all of a sudden, they, over this time, they get joined by all these other people. And the talk over the top is how to start a movement, stand out from the crowd, get someone to join you, and then people join you because they don't want to be by themselves. And I was looking at it thinking, no, they're just having an awesome time at a festival. But <laughs> I shared it on LinkedIn and people are going, yeah, it's one of the best videos I've seen. And whereas I looked at it the first time and I thought, what's that to do with leadership, just having a good time? So I've challenged my own views of the world, thinking, no, be open to this story. But it's very good. 
the guy who talks over is Derek Sivers, and I'll put a link in our show links. What is funny, though, is looking at this on YouTube, the comments underneath, and someone said, uh, look, this guy was just wanting to have a good time. Now he's famous for leadership all over the world. And someone else said, you know, I did this and I started a movement in the Philippines and overthrew the government. And so the, <laughs> the, the, com- the comments underneath, and obviously some other comments saying he was just doing this or that <laughs> underneath were the, the, the highlight. But there's some really nice lessons around just being okay from standing out from the crowd. So that's caught my eye. So all that that research we did at at festivals together then, Simon, wasn't in vain then? No, it was life lessons in leadership. So, (laughs) (laughs) Which has brought us to where we are today, John. It's a guest episode this week, Simon. So, um, who is our curious, creative, and imaginative cat this week? Well, John, we're in for a treat this week. Our guest mantra is you move and you improve. He's a two-time author, and he's more dance grooves than Elvis, John Travolta, Beyonce, and Jamiroquai combined. He's in more magazines and papers than the Kardashians and has appeared on television and stages across the globe. He's a multi-TED Talk speaker, and having seen this man live, he lights up the speaking stage like a beacon of energy, movement, and fun all in one, sending the audience into some sort of fantastic frenzy. He's a doctor of science, academia, and dance, and I think the doctor of helping us to all live a more joyous life. Dr. Peter Lovett, welcome to the Occupational Philosophers. Well, thank you very much. What a fantastic introduction. And thank you for inviting me. It's really great to be here. Peter, maybe just carrying off from myself and Simon sharing what's caught our eye and what we are curious about, what's caught your eye this week? Well, this week, what's caught my eye is the inclusion of breakdancing in the 2024 Olympics in Paris. And I think this is extraordinary that something like breakdancing, which is a fantastic free form of dance, is now going to be squeezed into the Olympics. And I'm not quite sure whether I'm pleased about it or displeased about it, because I think it's going to change breakdancing in lots of ways. And I'm not sure whether that's definitely a good thing. (laughs) And would you say it would change it to be a little more um, non-freeform? Like they have to put in elements where they say, oh, he's done this well and he's done that well and that backflip. So a little bit more of that. Is that what your thinking is? Yeah, my my assumption is that the first year it's in, it's going to be fantastic. So in 2024, when we see all these amazing international breakdancers, I think it's going to be really special. But four years later, if it's in again, I think the new round of breakdancers will start doing the tricks that the judges give the highest marks to. So we'll lose the creativity, we'll lose the spontaneity associated with it, we'll lose the kind of cheeky expressiveness of the dance form, and then it'll become codified and judged. And as soon as we get that and people start working towards those tricks, we're going to have gold medalists in breakdancing who actually aren't the best dancers. Mm. And I think for me, there's a conflict between what is art and what is sport. And that whole definition, I find it with TV shows like Dancing with the Stars or Strictly Come Dancing, as soon as you start to judge something, then, of course, people then say, well, I'm not good enough to do it. And this is something we are literally born to do. 
And I think, you know, it's great when we have running in the Olympics because basically you've got to run the fastest over a certain distance and, and no one's judging your running. You've just got to run from A to B and the fastest person wins. Now, dancing is as natural as running and perhaps more so. And the element of that is, I think, as soon as we then move away from the art and get to, becomes a technical exercise, I think it, it kind of blurs the definition and the use of it. And maybe um, a little less focus on the enjoyment, but more the, um, which is really that human element, which we like you talk about, we should all, we all do, rather than something which we fear what people might say. Exactly that. Now, that hum- now of course, in breakdancing, you get this amazing human element. Because what happens is, let's imagine us three were, were in a kind of battleground and we're all dancing in front of each other. The idea is that I'd be looking you in the eye, Simon. You'd be looking me in the eye. And I look at John and I go, oh, John. And John would come into the middle and he'd do his dance moves. And I go, no, I could do better than that. And I go into the middle and I go, hey, John, I'll see that and I'll raise you one. So I do an extra flip. And then Simon, you go, oh, Peter, are you, are you've done that. I can do this. And between us, we are having this conversation about competences and it's an, it evolves in real time. And that's what's so wonderful about these things, because it is about communicating that, that, those battles and challenges. And it's cognitive because you're creating it on the spur of the moment. And I think if it was the case that you two were just a pair of judges and I went in front of you and you said, OK, Peter, right, show us what you've got. And I did this trick. So I did a backflip. It would just be like as if I was a mannequin. It would be devoid of that human interaction. And that's where dance for me is. Dance is all about the human experience and what it is to be a human being and how we communicate with each other, bond together socially, think, problem solve, emote, and move physically, all those things. I was getting quite excited, Peter, actually. The idea it sounded quite gladiatorial. I was thinking more of a Mexican standoff with the three of us. Almost <laughs> <laughs> the good, bad, and the ugly. <laughs> I don't know who you want to be, Lee Van Cleef or the other one. <laughs> yeah, I'll just be the ugly one, looking at you two. I have a funny story that we share from our um, family. Like my mum was quite a, an avid reader of the newspaper. And I remember when I was 18, 19, she started telling me, Simon, look, I don't want you to sort your problems out with uh, fighting anymore. Not that I was ever fighting. I don't know where this came from. She said, you need to sort your problems out with breakdancing. In New York, the gangs together now, they don't get together and fight they if there's a problem they start to break dance with i remember saying to mum mum i'm not in a gang by any means and i don't really have any issues with anyone but she, she this was a story for about a year year and a half simon break dancing is a way to sort out these things break dancing which brings me to peter your story that sort of piece of communication and i never thought of the psychology behind it well i guess uh, i'm a dance psychologist I guess that's how I would define myself as a dance psychologist. And because a psychologist is interested in the science of human behavior. And as a dance psychologist, I'm interested in the science of the human behavior of dancing. And I want to understand it not as a therapeutic tool, because there are lots of people who study dance therapeutic from a therapeutic perspective. And I'm not studying it necessarily from an arts perspective, so understanding how to create great choreography. I'm trying to understand dance from the human experience. So asking questions like, why do people dance? Why do some people hate to dance? You know, what, what's that all about? What does dance do for us? What was the function of dancing in our society? 
what happens to us in our brains and in our minds when we move our bodies in certain ways. So as a dance psychologist, I'm interested in the science of human behavior as it relates to dance. What would you say might be your other two things on your axis there, that intersection? Oh, I, I guess education and entertainment. I guess what I want to be able to do is to move out of the lab, because I have now moved out of the lab, and I want to educate people about the amazing impact of movement in the real world. And I want to entertain people. So using though all that stuff together, the science of dance, communicating stuff, but in an entertaining, fun way. Peter, one of the things I was going to ask about was, I know that before we get into the, the main part of this, the podcast today, you've got the new book out, The Dance Cure. I have. I think it's launched in the UK. I think it's about to launch in the US. Is that right? That's absolutely right. It's, hold on, I've got copies here. Not that you, anyone can see them, but um, we're not on the video. So I don't know why. Could, they look great. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got the American version called The Dance Cure, and I've got the UK version, which is also called The Dance Cure. It came out in the UK. This was great. It came out on April the 2nd. That We went into a lockdown the week before that. The bookshops all closed. Nobody bought physical books for two months after that time. Nobody. Right? The sales are terrible. Not All books are terrible. Bookshops were closed. <laughs> the, whole, the whole calendar of promotion for the book and all the events we were going to run, everything cancelled, obviously. So that, that was fine. But the book's doing really well now. And we'd be very lucky that it was just being mentioned by the Observer newspaper as one of the books of 2020. So one of the best books of 2020. So that's really exciting. And it comes out as being published by HarperCollins or Harper One in the USA in January 2021. I was reading the bit where it says about just before bedtime is a good time to dance. Yeah. <laughs> so that caught my eye. And, and I think it was saying, and it was scientists saying that this is the best time to learn a dance routine or indeed anything before you go to sleep, because that's when the brain starts to build these new schemas, as they yeah. say, structures, and we start to learn and remember information. So my question is this. My 11-year-old son is currently doing his assessments at school, yeah. and I'm helping him revise, which is making my brain ache. How best can I use what's in the dance school to help him revise? Because okay. I was starting to think about movement, and I, I confess we actually go running in the morning, and we've been running and revising at the same time. Fantastic. Well, that's good. Now, running is, is halfway there. You're not quite there completely. What he needs to do is to break up his revision with movement breaks. So basically, every 45 minutes, he needs, well, is he 11? So if he's 11, 11, every half an hour, have five uh -huh. minutes of a movement break. And the type of movement he does will impact the type of problem solving he's capable of doing. We know that if people do some improvised movements, Right. So with running, it's a fairly structured movement, right? So you, you get into a stride length and you're, you're running. You're not doing much else. It's a fairly predictable set of movement patterns. We call that structured dance. So there's a structure to this movement. What we know is that when people engage in only five minutes of structured movement, it has a positive impact on their convergent problem-solving skills. So the types of convergence problem-solving skills where there's one answer, but you might take several cognitive steps to work out, you know, to get to that answer. We know that when people do some structured movement, it improves that type of problem-solving. 
And what's amazing is it speeds up those cognitive processes. So in the lab, what we've seen is that people can take those multiple cognitive steps to find an answer, and they get there faster. And there's no loss of accuracy in that increase in speed. So there's a relationship between our physical movement and that type of thinking that's going on inside the head. Amazing. Now, the opposite of that is improvised movement. So let's imagine rather than just running, you started running and you put your arms up in the air and you were, you were doing a bit of a John Travolta move as you're running along, you're rolling your hands around, wiggling your hips, mixing up the... So basically, let's imagine rather than just running, you were running with a wiggle, okay? So you're running with a wiggle. You don't have to run. You can do it in your own room and you're in the privacy of your own home. Get that wiggle on. And when that wiggle becomes improvised, what we know there is that it increases people's divergent thinking. So in other words, their creativity and their problem solving through creativity, where there's not just one correct answer to a problem, there might be hundreds of correct answers to problems. What we know is that when people have been moving their body in an improvised way, it improves that. So if your son is perhaps doing something, doing some revision, where it's you know, very sequential processing, and he's trying to do step one, step two, step three, step four, then of course, every half an hour, get him to do a few minutes of structured movement. It might be star jumps, jumping jack, burpees, whatever it is. Yeah. If he's doing something more creative, if he's doing English literature or physics, or trying to solve some really complex maths problems where there's multiple correct solutions to this, then getting into mixing in some improvised movement is good. Now, of course, in the real world, we're constantly trying to solve both types of problems. You know, every problem we have, it has elements of convergent problem solving, where we're going through these, these sequences, and divergent problem solving, where there's not just one correct path, there might be hundreds or a dozen correct paths. So, of course, what we need to get used to is mixing up these movement profiles. So in our movement profiles, doing some improvised and some structured movement, because very often people find it easy just to do the structured movement, but they find the improvised movement really hard. And so finding new ways of moving your body while your son's revising in his room or wherever he revises, get into the, the every half an hour him doing that for a few minutes, that will change the way he learns and it will change the way he remembers the material and it will change the way he interacts with the material. With your book, Peter, look, it's doing absolutely great guns and uh, it's up for a bunch of awards and, you know, The Observer put it as one of the top books for 2020. So if there could be just, what are three, we, I like to think in three. So if there are three key takeaways from this book, what would you love people to, at the end of that book, be doing or thinking or dancing, if that's a better okay. way, or how would they move, yeah. Well, the first thing, it's the first takeaway is that humans are born to dance. And wouldn't it be wonderful if the whole society was reshaped so that dancing was seen as a, such a natural activity as drinking a cup of coffee? So that's the first thing, right? So first takeaway, dancing is the most natural thing in the world, and we should all be doing more of it, right? We should free ourselves from the, from the constraints of not dancing. The second thing is, dancing is fantastic for social bonding. We know that when people move together, some amazing things happen. We know, for instance, that when people move together in synchrony, they report liking each other more. They feel more psychologically similar to one another in terms of their values. They 
trust each other more, and they show more pro-social or helping behavior. So moving our bodies together changes societies, whether that society is an office block, whether it's a corporate situation where we work every single day, whether it's in an education environment or in a health environment or just in the park, synchronized movement is fantastic for bringing societies together. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we could do more of that? So that's the second take-home message from the book. The third take-home message from the book, which one? There, there are loads, there are loads, there are loads. The, the, I think, <laughs> let, let's, let's go with the, well, we've already done thinking and problem solving. Let's go with our emotions. When we move our body, it changes the way we feel. You know, we've got a, I know we're in the middle of a pandemic, but we also have this, a pandemic of anxiety and depression. We've got this situation where we're, we're feeling rubbish about ourselves. Our self-esteem is really low. We feel rubbish and we feel hopeless. What we know is that when people dance, and this might sound silly, but it's not silly at all. We know that when people dance, it lifts their mood. We know that we communicate our mood with other people. People can read our mood through the way we move our bodies. And so those first two, if we were to free ourselves up for a bit more and allow ourselves to move more, and if we allowed ourselves to move together with other people, then it would lift our mood. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we lifted the mood of our nations and brought people together? And the third take-home message is that dancing does that. On this notion of dancing, and I'm going to jump a little bit further ahead than where I thought I would have, but it's a great time to uh, jump in. And when I speak, because, you know, I come from a, a visual arts background and, you know, love to dance uh, as well, so I come from that performance background. But when I speak, I always speak around every Indigenous culture records their stories in song, dance and visuals and that's been happening since the beginning of time. But in Western culture, we shy away from these, like singing and dancing we'll only do when no one's watching or listening or we're drunk at someone's wedding. And as for uh, art, you know, go to hell with that of any type of sort of visual creation. So what stops us dancing and doing these other creative things? Because I think that comes to the heart of a lot of this stuff because it's it's in our soul. But So what, what, what gets in the way? Well, we've done some surveys asking people why they do and don't dance. And certainly in Western cultures, when I mean, thousands and thousands of people have told us why they do or don't dance. And some of the reasons people give are things like self-consciousness. So they, they feel self-conscious about moving their body. They feel there's a competency issue. And this is one of the issues that I, I really, really, really gets under my skin. People don't think they're good enough to dance, or they feel they'd be judged for their dancing, um, or they feel they're the wrong sort of person to do it. So what we've seemed to have done, we've backed ourselves into a corner with dance where we tend to think of dance as being something that only little children do, right? Or we think so it's either something little children do or you have to be brilliant. You have to be the prima ballerina of a major ballet company to be able to dance. Only those two extremes dance and everybody else in the middle is made to feel inadequate because they've either got the wrong body shape or they feel they have, or they're not good enough. They can't get their leg up by their ear and they're afraid of what people think about them. So we're externalizing this and saying, gosh, your opinion about me moving my body is so strong that I'm not going to move my body. We strip dance out of the education system pretty much in the UK. And of course, people don't experience dance. The only people who go to dance are those whose parents pay for them to go to these dance classes. So it becomes something that isn't done. And of course, we also have this weird notion 
just bonkers, that dance is just for girls. You know, young girls dance. And something also that gets under my skin is when I go into London, into Covent Garden area, where most of the dance shops are, you know, the shops that sell dancewear, they're all the, the front windows are pink and frilly. And I've got two boys of my own. And there's no way that either of my boys would want to go into those shops. Both of them dance, but they wouldn't go into those shops because they just don't appeal. And even as a middle-aged man going into those shops, they look like these shops are just for little girls, which of course they're not, but that's the impression they give. So we've got this, this mad notion that dancing is only for those little girls and um, who have certain body shape and size. And I don't know whether it's similar to the other art forms. It's, we know that the arts are at the kind of bottom of the academic hierarchy. So we, we've got you know, the sciences and then we've got the humanities and then we've got the arts down there. And then within the arts, dance seems to be the poor cousin, even in the arts world. So my son goes to school, he's seven at the moment, and they've got a whole music block, got a massive music block. And they've got an art block, a lovely art block with great big windows to let natural light in and they do lots of art. I haven't got a dance block. Mm. So, and I keep t- saying to the headmaster, where's your dance? He goes, well, I will. And he never quite gives me an answer as to why they haven't got one. But it just shows that where the investment goes, it goes to music tuition, it goes to art tuition, but it doesn't go to dance tuition because we don't value dance. And that's why when dance becomes part of the Olympics, people go, oh, it's dumbing down because they're seeing this art form. Now, maybe that's because we've got this patriarchal society which has always seen that you know men do science women do arts particularly women doing dance and it's young women who are doing dance and if we think about a patriarchal society from a hierarchical perspective where men are at the top and women are at the bottom then of course the young version of women which is girls at the very bottom of that hierarchy now maybe this comes from our victorian era i don't know where it comes from but it's terrible if our attitudes towards dance are wrapped around those kinds of politics, which then stop people doing it. Now, as I said earlier, I genuinely believe that we are humans are born to dance. Dance is an innate activity. It's something we are born to do. But we've created a society in some parts of the society where we close that off. And we say, and I think it was Jung, I think it was Carl Jung, nothing to do with dancing, he said that some of our problems come when we have a conflict between our natural desires and the Decalogue, in other words, the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments say you mustn't cover thy neighbor's wife, but your desire is, oh, I really fancy that. Oh, I really like that person. I want to go and mate with that person. And you've got this conflict between what the Decalogue is telling you and what your drives are telling you. And I think in some ways we've got that problem with dancing as well. We've got this natural urge and desire to dance but our societal kind of decalogue, our societal rules say, no, 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 dancing isn't for you. So lots of the reasons people give us for not dancing is because they say they are the wrong type of person. They're the wrong ethnicity. They're the wrong gender. They're the wrong sex. They're the wrong age. They're the wrong body size, the wrong body shape, because people think that dancing is for people without their, their, all those characteristics. As you say there, Peter, that whole fear thing that plagues most creative pursuits, doesn't it? The fear of looking stupid or the fear of standing out, and as you describe it for dance as well. 
what do we need to do then to break these things down? Because part of our show is bringing more creativity, more curiosity, more imagination, more play into our lives, because not only is it a life skill, it's a great business skill. So how do we break down that barrier? What's a good way to start? Well, the first way is to start noticing how you're moving and noticing how the people around you are moving. So think about movement, think about your own movement, and think about how much of it is this kind of functional movement, right? You just move to get from point A to B. You move to complete a particular functional task, like doing the photocopying or making the coffee or typing something. And then think about, okay, so how can I make that more creative? You know, how can you extend the range of your movement? And we need to become more movement intelligent. You know, we need to have this movement intelligence where we find other ways of moving our body to make that part of a natural movement. Now, of course, I would love to see, you know, every high street having where there's one coffee shop, take out one coffee shop and put a boogie booze into that space. You know, I would like to see a bus stops, music being piped out or rhythms or something so people kind of feel that urge to move. I, I want to see breakout rooms in offices where, again, we have boogie booths in offices, you know, so people can go during the day into this booth and do whatever they want with their bodies. Let them really go let rip. But I think we need to become more used to moving our body in different ways. And the more we move in a creative way, we get rid of those set patterns of thinking and set patterns of moving, the more creative we'll become with our movement. And it's like, if we imagine movement, like wearing a different set of clothes, so we could all wear gray flannel business suits and a tie and a shirt. You know, we could all do dress in that same way. Or we might wear pink trousers one day. We might wear a T-shirt rather than a shirt. We might wear change the color of our outfits. We have different color glasses. Now, we, we might have this idea that we change the what we wear as this outward behavior. But I think we should try to change the way we move so that we present in the way that we would present pink trousers rather than gray trousers. We might present wearing a vest rather than a jacket then I think we could express our same way with our movement. That change of movement should be normalised. I heard about the boogie box thing, Peter, that struck me. I think you were chatting with is it Darcy Bustle. It was one of the oh, episodes yes. about in the workplace. And I love the idea that, yes, you could go in there, draw the blinds, but you could also ask it and say, I'm trying to solve a problem. Give me a dance or play me some music that will inspire me or have me think in the right way. Was that, that was part of it as well, was it? Absolutely. Yeah, the idea of the boogie box is to have, well, we want these totally immersive rooms. So, oh, have you ever read Fahrenheit 451? Yeah, Fahrenheit 451. So this, this like, now at the beginning of that, there's these giant screens on all of their, their walls are made up of these giant screens. And I imagined a boogie box full of these screens, immersive completely all the way around you. And you could go in and you could have that immersive. So you could either, you could dance with, a hundred other people who are all on the screen around you, or you could dance by yourself. You could do whatever you want in this space and you can move and dance. And it could be as loud as you want. The visual experience could be, so it could be completely random and you don't know what you're going to get, or it might be very structured and you do know what you're going to get. And you could use different dances to solve different problems. You could go into the boogie box and say to, to it, yeah, I'm feeling anxious, just feeling anxious now. And then the music would happen and there might be some instructions for happening, but you could then start moving your body and it might guide you through that movement. Or you might say, 
you know, I'm feeling euphoric. You know, how can I let all this out? Wow, I, I want to go, whoa. You could have that festival experience if you wanted. You could be that bloke in the middle of the field who runs down to the beginning and start dancing. And then suddenly everybody else can come and join you and dance with you. You could be the person in that leadership video you're talking about. <laughs> We love getting people to be a little curious and thinking a little bit differently. So we have created what we call thought experiments, or they could just be a fancy word for a game, but you need to take your own interpretation of that. But this one is called True or Not. Now, I will read out a quote about dance, and you need to tell me if it's true or not. And if you think it's true, extra points for if you can guess the person who said it. Okay, our first quote, dancing, the vertical expression of a horizontal desire legalised by music. True or not? Oh, that was a true George Bernard Shaw. Oh, ding, ding. All right. Well done. done. All right. Now, our second quote. But that is true. Can I expand on why it's true? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yes. When we're dancing, there's such a relationship between dancing and lovemaking. It's extraordinary. And we know that from a hormonal level, that when we dance, we're communicating stuff about our hormones to other people around us. And of course, dancing is seen as a mate selection process. It was Charles Darwin who argued that dancing was part of the human mate selection process. And so, of course, that ties in with George Bernard Shaw's observation really, really nicely, because we are, when we groove and when we move, it is a, yeah, it it feels delicious. And I think a lot of people have met their partner on the dance floor. I know I did. So I imagine a fair few other people have as well. So with them... With some legalized music, I think. The other thing with that is what we know, we looked at age dancing as a function of age and relationships. And of course, we know that a lot of people used to use dancing 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. They use dancing in a particular way at nightclubs and they find a find a mate, find a partner. And then we looked at the average age of first marriage in the UK and the average length of a first marriage. So the average length of the first marriage was about seven years, and then then they divorced. And then there was another peak of an uptake of people using dancing again to find a mate. So we had lots of people who were divorcees then going to nightclubs and using dance, but they hadn't danced in the interim. And that's probably why they got divorced. But the idea is if they'd been with their partner, they'd met their partner dancing, they'd stopped dancing, relationship went nowhere, (laughs) and uh, fell apart. That one left, went back to a nightclub again to find the next partner. And so, yeah, we know there's a relationship. Anyway, I'm talking too much. I apologize. No, this is good. <laughs> I was just thinking, I, I too met my wife in a nightclub and spotted her dancing to It's Raining Men. Oh. <laughs> in a very divergent way. Right. And uh, I thought, there's the lady for me. That's brilliant. Works every time, uh, Yeah. Did you meet your partner, Simon, in a, a dancing environment? I did. I, the, the story is actually a little funnier than that she was dancing on a podium as in uh, not in a stripper type way uh, <laughs> which was one of the rumors for many years a German girlfriend of ours came up she said Sally she used to be the stripper yeah oh no no she just no <laughs> this is about after 15 years of knowing it <laughs> but she was just dancing on, on a raised platform in a nightclub she fell off that platform onto another girlfriend of mine they became friends 
And then we did meet in a nightclub on the back of that. She introduced us in a nightclub. Oh. So there was two dancing moves, but her very high heels probably helped her to, enabled her to slip and fall. I don't know. Maybe there was something there that we I didn't know. So, oh. Well, we've got a threesome because all three of us now, I met my partner. Well, I didn't fancy Lindsay at all. And we went out to the Limelight nightclub in London and we're in Shaftesbury Avenue. And we got there and I went to get a drink and she got onto a podium and was dancing on a podium. And I turned around from the bar and I saw this vision dancing on the podium. And that was it. Boom. And that was it. Boom, boom, boom. And so six weeks later, I proposed and we've been married for over 30 years ever since. And so that was, you know, she was communicating to me through that thing. And it sounds like all of us have met our partners. Podiums in nightclubs play a big part in our, in our relationship. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's enough of an argument for the power of dance, isn't it, really? All right. Yeah. So, look, if you're not dancing, as soon as nightclubs open back up again, get out and get some shimmy in you. Now, quote two, running a company is like a dance. I am the dancer and everyone else is the dance floor. True or not? So I'm the dancer and everyone else is, I agree that running a company is like dancing. I agree there's some parallels between those two things. The separation of the leader from everybody else on the dance floor, because that implies they're walking over them. So I would say the second part of that is probably not true. Correct. That, that is not true. <laughs> that, was a, that was made up. All right. So two out of two, you're doing very well so far. All right. Our third quote Almost nobody dances sober unless they happen to be insane. Oh, now, I don't know. Several people have made relationships about dancing insane. Oh, nobody dances unless they're insane. Uh, I think probably somebody did say that, but I'm going to say it's false. Someone did say it, and also author H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, but they were wrong. Yeah, oh, no. I'm, not, I'm not saying the quote is true. Did somebody say it? So that's uh, oh, yeah. three out of three. Well done. And Peter, maybe just to add into the mix, do you have a favourite quote of your own about dance? Is there one that you have? It's dance first, think later. It's the natural order. And that was Samuel Beckett who said that. So ah. dance first, think later. It's the natural order. And because... We've got this thing in our society where we think we should, well, there's a ridiculous separation between we, we're still in this bonkers, bonkers, bonkers space where we think all the thinking happens in the head and we have to keep the body still, keep the body perfectly still because if you move your head too much, all the clever stuff will fall out. And so we try, all of our learning experiences tend to be stationary, sedentary. Don't move in case you, the clever stuff doesn't go in. And I think, no, 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 we should flip that on its head. We should move first. I get ourselves moving and dancing, and then the thinking will kick in. Now, Peter, I've heard you speak on stage, and your story about school was, it hit the mark because school fee was really average, but that was also where you found dance. So it was the start of a great story as well. Why was school average, and how did dance make you feel at school and then help you to move on through to where you are now, where you have multiple degrees and a doctor of dance? Well, well, the first thing you got wrong there was that school wasn't average. It was terrible. I mean, it was the worst experience of my life. I hated being at school and I was rubbish at it. I hated everything about being at school or almost everything. So it was a horrible experience. And it was a horrible experience because I had a very severe reading and writing difficulty. And when you can't read and write very well, 
but all the learning is channeled through the medium of reading and writing. So they teach you stuff by getting you to read stuff. And then they test your knowledge of that by getting you to write that stuff down. Well, if you can't read and write very well, then you are bound to fail. And I failed spectacularly in all of the written subjects, English, geography, history, RE, all of those subjects. I was rubbish at them. And when you fail at school and you fail at those reading and writing based subjects, you become the failure. You, know, you eventually become a certified failure. You don't just fail. You get a certificate in failure at the other end. And you get the certificate from an authority. It's a national certificate of being a failure. There's no escaping that. And it becomes part of who you are. And so we know that people who don't read and write very well tend to have fewer friends than people who are highly literate. I mean, this has been shown scientifically. We know that people who are poor readers and writers are much more likely to engage in antisocial behavior. They get in trouble more with the school. They get in trouble with the police. They get in trouble with all sorts of authorities. People who are poor readers and writers are less likely to pass exams, and they're less likely to get the jobs they want at the other end. So all of those things together were true of me. And it knocks your self-esteem. When you become a certified failure, you live that, and it becomes part of your identity. You feel rubbish about yourself. You feel hopeless. I was really, really, really lucky that my school had a school dance group. The dance group was called Colour Supplement because all the girls in the dance group had to wear different coloured leotards and tights. And for me, dancing had always felt like the most amazing thing in the world. When I danced, I felt different. And the school dance group let me join the dance group. I was the only boy. There were 300 girls and me. And I'd go and dance when all the other boys were getting changed for football or rugby or cricket. I'd be getting changed into dance gear and going into the dance. So I took quite a bit of personal grief from inevitably my peers thinking that I was something, you know, whatever. But when I danced, I just felt completely, completely different. Whereas when I was sitting in a classroom struggling with the reading and writing, I felt useless. I felt dark clouds over my head. I felt my thinking to be constrained. It was a negative emotional experience and I hated it. I used to divide my piece of paper into, I still remember doing this, it was such a waste of a life, dividing it into 35 squares. And then I'd spend a minute coloring in each square. And I wouldn't do it like you do it, Simon, creatively. I just had a black biro that I would just color in these 35 squares because that would get me to the end of the lesson. I mean, what a waste of a life. Mm. And when I was in, and then of course I wouldn't learn. And I, well, I'd go into the dance hall and I felt completely different. My mind felt different. My emotions felt different. My relationships with other people felt different. My moods, everything was lifted. So I had these two states going on. But of course, you weren't judged for your dancing at school. You were judged because people see it as a silly activity that's peripheral to any intelligent learning. They, they, they see it as something that's subordinate to anything that's worthwhile. It's just a fun activity. But it's so clearly not. It's something much more important than that. And then I go back into the classroom and I, I struggle there. When I left school, I left school without any qualifications because, of course, I did them all and I failed them. But I was so lucky that I went off and because I could dance, I got a, a place at a, a drama college. Now, of course, when I went to drama college when I was 16, drama and dance school, you had to still take the O level in English. Everyone, if you haven't passed that by the time you get to 16, you had to keep taking it. So I kept taking it and kept failing it. 
So I, every year I would refail my English, my English O-level, you know, over and over and over again. But then I got into the Guildford School of Acting and Dance, and I went there and I trained as a dancer and uh, in dance and musical theatre. And when I graduated from GSA, I then went to work in professional theatre, and I loved it. I travelled around the world working as a dancer and had a fantastic experience. But I still felt that there was this sense of stupidity. Obviously, it still felt like a failure. And then one day, something changed. And this is where this tiny, tiny, tiny change of thought led to a complete change in my life. And that change was, I was doing a show in London, and we were rehearsing the show. I was a dancer in this show, but there were actors in it, and there were musicians in it. On the first day of rehearsal, the, act, the musicians came in, and they give, were given their musical score, and they were given, they had a conductor, musical director, they would read their musical score, they would play their notes, and they would learn that score. And then on the opening night of the show, they would sit in the orchestra pit with their music and a conductor keeping them in time. The actors did something a little bit harder. They had their script, and they would, the first week of rehearsal, they'd be, learned, they'd be reading their script off the page. And then after that, they would put their books down, and they'd memorize the, the, the words. And on the first night of the show, if they forgot their lines, then somebody in prompt corner would shout out what the next line was, and it would you know, leave them. But as dancers, we did something completely different. And we did something that the actors and the musicians would never be able to do. And we didn't realize it at the time. We came into the rehearsal room, and a choreographer would say, right, we'll have one of these, one of these, one of bump, 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 and they teach us a whole lot of movement. And they wouldn't just give us eight counts of movement. They would give us two hours worth of movement patterns that we would follow them and we would just remember them. We would learn them inside our heads. And then we, would, we couldn't write them down. In those days, we couldn't film ourselves doing them. You just had to watch and learn. And then on the opening night of the show, you'd come out and you'd dance. You'd boom, boom, boom. You'd remember two hours worth of movement patterns. Now imagine if the musicians came in on the first day of rehearsal and they couldn't write anything down and they just had to listen to the music and they had to learn it all by ear, eight notes at a time. Or if the actors couldn't read their script, but someone just said, okay, your first line is, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks? Oh, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the East and Juliet is a sun. It is the East and Juliet is a sun. And they learned the whole of Romeo and Juliet just like that. They couldn't do it. But as dancers, we did do it. And it occurred to me then that I couldn't be stupid. Because up till that point, I thought, well, I'm a certified failure and I'm stupid. I'm sick. I'm a retard. I'm all of those, those things recognizing that I could learn these complex movement patterns, some big movements, some small movements, some with my fingers, some with my whole body, some in time to music, some with no music, some lifting people up. There's a whole set of movements you could learn. And I thought, gosh, if I'm capable of learning that, I must be able to learn how to read and write. So I was in my early 20s, and I set about then trying to learn to read and write. And when you start to learn to read in your early 20s, it's really hard because lots of the early reading material is for very young kids, which reinforces the idea that you're a failure. The second thing that's difficult is all of your friends and family and your peers know you as the stupid one, the one who has failed every written exam they've ever taken. And so when you say to those people, hey, guess what? I'm going to learn to read. Most of them go, well, you'll, you'll fail. You won't be able to. You know, What makes you think you can read now? You couldn't read then. You know, and there are these social barriers to you learning to read and write. So I learned to read and write, and I started to use what I knew about learning movement patterns to help me learn patterns of words. 
and overcoming that. So slowly, 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 I started to build together these letter strings and these word strings and to try to understand what I could and couldn't understand about reading and writing. And so there were some things in reading and writing that tripped me up. There are some words, for instance, which make absolutely no sense. And I used to think that I was stupid for not being able to learn them. But when you try to learn to read the word like yacht or rhythm, they simply make no sense. And it isn't me who's stupid. It's the written words which are stupid. You know, how do we know about these exceptions of live and live, row and row? How are we meant to know what to say when we're given these letter strings? How does the brain do that? There are so many exceptions. I before E except after C. That's not a rule. Teachers tell us that's a rule, but it's not a rule because there are so many exceptions to that. How do we know how to write down, I didn't choose to lose my shoes, when choose and lose and shoes have completely arbitrary spellings? And you try to think, well, fusses and fuses and bus and buses. Why does buses and fuses, why do they have exactly the same spelling except for the B and the F, but they sound completely different when you pluralize them? It makes no sense. So I started to be really critical about some of these exceptions and think it's, it's not me who's stupid. It's the language that's stupid. And once you get into that mindset of thinking, OK, well, OK, I'm going to overcome this. And these rules that these teachers gave me, which don't work. It's not my fault. It's their fault for giving me the wrong rules. They were telling me there was this rule and it doesn't work. And so I'm not going to take responsibility for that. So it's their issue, not mine. So I started to learn. Now, once when I started to read, there were some things which I didn't get. And I used to, when I started to read, one of the first books I read was a book by Jeffrey Archer, just kind of popular author. And he had this book. And in the book, there was an, it was all about this religious well, icon. There was an icon referred to in this book. And I had no clue what an icon was. And this icon came all the way through. So I took it as a problem-solving exercise. I started going through it thinking, okay, icon, what, is, what's, what could icon be? And I thought, well, in this context, the icon must be this. All right, okay. So I'd have this hypothesis in my head about what icon was, and it would be part of the story. And then, of course, the story would move on, and that, that hypothesis didn't work anymore. So whereas I would have given up at that point, I thought, no, 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 change your hypothesis about what this icon is, and then create something new. So this icon had about five or six different lives of its own in my head and the story all changed and it was years later that I realized that it was an icon it was a religious icon that he was writing about and the icon obviously I know what that means now but in those times I was creative with it and tried to create these different meanings when I learned to read I then decided to do I mean I failed I kept failing I did a an A level in psychology and I, I got a grade D in A level psychology so I just scraped a pass but I was so excited to get past that. I applied for university and was rejected by all of them. That was fine. So a year later, I took an A-level in English and I failed that A-level in English. But while I was failing it, a university in London gave me a place to study psychology and English at university. So I, went, I failed my A-level English again and I went to university and studied psychology and English. And then I got really interested in neurophysiology and the brain and so then I was very lucky. I won a scholarship after my first degree to study for a master's degree in neural computation, which is the mathematical modeling of brain functions. And so I did that. And at the end of that, then got another scholarship to study for my PhD in experimental cognitive psychology. So looking at how the mind and the brain, 
how memory and language is organized in the mind and the brain. So I did that. And then at the end of that, I then went to the University of Cambridge. And when I was at Cambridge University, I was there in the Faculty of English. And I'd still never passed an A-level in, in, in English. And I went to the Faculty of English at Cambridge as a psychologist to look at how the brain processes language. And so I was looking at very much at the computational linguistics, looking at how the, how the brain processes language, how the brain learns first, second, third, fourth language, how it does all that. And it was while I was there, and I'd always dreamed, you know, when I first learned to read, I think it was one of the first books I read, I had this fantasy that one day I could go to Cambridge. And of course, I didn't have any qualifications. So I didn't, there was nothing that said I could go. And so you need a bit of bloody mindedness to have these dreams, which are so ridiculous. They are so off the planet, but you've got to have them because if you don't have them, you won't get there. So I had this dream and I applied to Cambridge at every round and was rejected by them at every single round until I had my PhD. And when I had my PhD, I then applied and I became an academic at Cambridge. So I got a, a post at Cambridge University. But it, what was interesting was that when I went for these dinners and people would, would talk about A-levels, I didn't have the courage to tell people there that I'd failed A-level English. Because even with all the failing at school, there was just that you carry that with you. That is like a tattoo emblazoned on your body somewhere of failure. So that's what I did. And it was while I was at Cambridge that I then, looking at language learning, thinking we kept talking about the first language and the second language and the third language you learn. And the first language, L1, is thought to be your, you know, the, the, your first form of language. And I thought, well, actually, no, 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 no. Our first form of language isn't our first verbal language. It's our first movement language because we're communicating through movement. So what I wanted to do was then apply all of the science that I'd learned in the neural computation and the experimentation and the scientific methods I've been learning. And I wanted to apply those to dance so that I could understand dance and dancers from a scientific perspective. So that's when I set up the Dance Psychology Lab. And that was wonderful because it suddenly meant I could bring my two worlds together, dance, and which I loved, psychology, which I was passionate about, and I could fuse them together in a brand new way, in a way that nobody else had ever done before, to create this laboratory looking at the two things that I loved. And since then, it's just been marvellous. And the amazing thing is that by doing that, it's put me on TV, dancing. It, it enabled me to dance with some of the most amazing dancers in the world. It's put me on the same stage with Oprah Winfrey and Barack Obama. So by creating the thing that I love, then that has given me access to all these amazing experiences, which I would never have had otherwise. And it's all thanks to that one moment when I was in rehearsal for a show in London, and I realized that I wasn't stupid, and that what I knew about dance, I could apply to learning about reading and writing, and it changed everything. Peter, I mean, that's what a learning odyssey. <laughs> Just the span of it is incredible. I mean, there's so many questions, but the the obvious one is from your personal experience on that learning journey, and then all of your studies and research into learning and language and how the brain operates and how it assimilates and discovers and makes connections. What have you learned about learning, maybe, as you reflect back on all of that journey? Is there some things that you really 
think could transform the way learning happens maybe yeah i mean we've got to take learning out of the classroom we've got to take learning out of this rigid sterile environment and because although you know there's a lot of research about learning styles and people saying learning styles you know there's a lot of evidence against learning styles and that's fine i'm not advocating learning styles in any way at all but i am advocating for a learning experience that isn't based on this notion of getting sitting people in rows and getting them to to learn spellings by rote i mean it's just kills creativity so i think there has to be a better way of opening people up to their learning experience we know the brain is just phenomenal we know the brain can make these connections between things and we're capable of building links between things that may not belong together you know people find those their own links in those so it's not the case that we need to just drip feed knowledge into someone and then they fill up with knowledge and they've got enough and they're now full and they can move on to the next stage that conveyor belt type of learning i think is terrible well it's certainly terrible for me and i think if we can get people to learn themselves be motivated by their learning thinking about different ways having lots of different experiences you know schools where people are painting where they're running in the woods where they're dancing where they're learning music where they're learning geography history in a multiple in lots of different contexts and i think that is a a rich and wonderful way to learn i think part of it is preparing people for those I, I, you know you would often see this you know skills of the future and again those lists that we talk about and you know creativity is always at the top but um i like john cleese's saying for that creativity isn't taught it's liberated so i think part yeah. of this education which we're speaking about is liberating the things which we're born naturally with and we breathe, we walk, we talk, and we, we create. Let's not drop the create. Let's, let's continue to liberate that and find these wonderful ways of bringing that into our, our lives and the way we think and act and, and the way we move as well, Peter. Yeah, all the, exactly that. If we can get the creative individual being creative about their own learning, people can help them to learn in that creative space. If you take the creativity out of it, then they just become a box you put stuff in, which is disorganized and, you know, well, it's not going to work for everyone. And I think part of that reliance on the notion of schools where schools, when there are league tables, as we discussed earlier on, when we prioritize some subjects over others and we put things, we say, you know, these subjects are important. You know, we're currently going through a system where I heard what the education minister talking about hard A levels versus easy A levels. And my skin started to crawl thinking, gosh, now you're setting this up so that people doing the hard A levels are the really clever people. And the people doing the easy A levels, which we know what those are probably, don't we? They're the people who are a bit thick and, you know, just, just give them the easy A levels. And I think that rank ordering of subject matter is just terrible. And you know, we should be learning about all kinds of things. We should be learning about physics and about drawing and about dancing and about mathematics and about philosophy, all of those, those things in, in that world. And I think we should take away some of the testing. Let's get rid of rank ordering children in terms of their abilities. Let's get rid of rank ordering schools in terms of which ones have the best A-level grades. Because then it goes back to the thing which was at the very beginning about breakdancing. But the reason that breakdancing is so fantastic is that it's a natural, immersive thing that comes out of a community and people do it. Once we put it into the Olympics and we start saying, oh, to be the best breakdancer, you need to be good at this move and this move and this move. You need to demonstrate these three moves. Then you lose all the rest of the character of it. And that's kind of what our education and our workplace is like. We want people to be 
you know, to hit these targets. And I think we, well, when we take away the creativity, then of course we take away the life and the character of an individual and our society. Peter, I just wanted to now just come in a bit to the main body of this, which is about creativity for us. It's about how creativity and innovation is the top of almost every workplace skills list and organizational desire. You know, when we are working in different businesses, that's what they want. They want people who are creative, problem solvers, team players, and they want to have a culture of innovation because that's what keeps them moving forward. And of course, then this whole thing about dance having such an impact about helping us get that thinking out. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, maybe specific to the workplace environment, maybe, as to how we can use what you've drawn out to help us in in that kind of environment? Okay. So for us, what we know is this relationship between the body and the mind. So when we move our body, it changes our, our thinking. And that changes in any environment. One of the limitations of a workplace environment very often is that it has set patterns of behavior. It has, certainly at most levels in an organization, there are rules to follow. There are behaviors that we have to follow. There are relationship dynamics that we have to fit into. So we have to constrain ourselves to fit into those ideas or those ways of behaving. And the problem is then when we're we're moving in a very habitual way, in a very controlled way, some environments even tell us the type of clothes we should wear. And that, of course, again, constrains our our movement and our behavior towards other people. But then when we're in those environments, they demand us to be extremely creative. And they say we need to be innovative and creative, but you must do it by being in this box. You've got to stay inside the box. And yet you've got to try and do something wonderful with your mind. Well, for me, the important thing in the workplace is to change the movement culture in many workplaces. So we've done that through our company working with clients. So we've done that, for instance, in a museum, and we've worked also with call center staff. So call center staff for one of the, the big credit companies. They're a big international credit company. They're very, very, very famous, very, very well known. And if ever you get into trouble, you can call your credit card provider and they will help you out of that dilemma. They'll, you know, if, you're, if there's an earthquake in Nepal, you can phone them apparently, and they can they will have somebody on the end of the phone will help you get out of that situation. Now, of course, the problem is those call center staff who are taking those calls are sometimes the lowest paid members of staff in the organization, and they're sitting down being sedentary for hour after hour after hour after hour. So the idea is that these people are meant to be offering a creative solution to a novel problem that comes into them. But the way that they're corralled and the way that their movement is constrained diminishes their ability to be creative. So we're working with this client, what we tried to do was to introduce different movement patterns that were very natural and meaningful to the people who were working in this call center. So it didn't feel like every half an hour they were jumping up and dancing to Beyonce. It wasn't that kind of dance and movement, but it was something about getting them up and helping them move as part of their natural day so that they stayed sharper, so that when they're answering the phones, they're a bit brighter and sharper. When people give them new problems, they can think beyond the script they've got in front of them, beyond the ability to follow that rule, and there's a workflow. And of course, creativity is all about breaking away from the workflow. 
or it might be about putting a flourish on the workflow, a new flourish that is, is a new interpretation of the workflow. And of course, movement can help that. So what we're doing with organizations is helping them to recognize the functional movements that they've got, and then helping them to work in a meaningful way to introduce new movements into that environment. We also did this with a museum, and a museum had a, a set of gallery staff, and the gallery staff used to sit in the galleries and be, again, quite sedentary. And customers would come into the museum, and customers would then typically, it was a very, 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 very large city museum, a huge museum in, in London. And the customers would come in, and the customers would only ever see about 30% of the exhibits because they would always walk in the same path. And the idea was the gallery staff played a key role in this. Now, what we wanted to do then was to change the movement of the gallery staff. So to get them not just sitting down in the corner reading a book, but to get them up and interacting with the visitors as they're coming through, but doing it in a really natural way so that it didn't look intimidating to the customers that these people were also moving. So what we did with them, we used the movement and very subtle movements of the gallery staff to move in such a way around the gallery that it would shepherd the visitors into different parts of the exhibition space so they would see a broader range of the exhibition. And this became a more dynamic relationship. And then, of course, the gallery staff, it was a real problem-solving task for them because the mental problem-solving task was, you know, how can you get your visitors to your gallery to see more than just this 30%? How can you make sure they come this way without saying to them, hey, everybody, come over here, go into this corner, have a look at this, everybody? You couldn't do that. So we used their movement and the way they moved around the room to shepherd people, almost like repellent magnets. So they kind of moved the, the human the, around the space. So the idea here is to become more aware of, of the movement patterns of both visitors and the gallery staff, making small changes to one so that it led to a change in, in the other. And of course, we were able to then measure, as, as I'm a scientist, what we wanted to do was to measure the outcome of that and report back to the gallery to see whether visitors were actually experiencing a wider range of the gallery space, and they were. And of course, for this large finance company, the idea was to use movement as the call center staff. So again, it's, it's about how we can use movement. And because we know that movement changes the way people think, it changes the way people interact with other people, it changes how they feel, and it also changes them physically as well, then we can use movement as part of the process of trying to achieve the business goals. Is dance, though, a fun way to introduce your topic of movement? the science of movement into organization is it almost it's a nice way in or or is dance still where it's at and you'd still say no let's bring some dance into the business well it depends what a goal you wanted to achieve now bringing people in you know we used to our company is called dr dance presents and so there's dr dance it's all about dance and then the more work we did with corporate organizations we eventually set up movement in practice Mm. And movement in practice, the kind of corporate side of the business where we would take movement into organizations. People would be really happy to have movement into their organizations. Yeah. They'd be less happy to have dance coming in until they can see. Now, of course, dance is such a heavily loaded term that yeah. it becomes a problem. So we have to get people moving and dancing without them realizing they're moving. And, well, they, they can move, but if we get them moving, they're quite happy. If I say to a bunch of people, okay, dance from one side of the room to the other, 
they go, no, I wouldn't. No, 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 no. And I go, okay, let's just walk from one side of the room to the other. They go, oh, yeah, I'll walk. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you get 10 people walking from one side of the room to the other. And then you go, okay, come back to the other side. And what have they start synchronizing? They, they start synchronizing. They're, they're walking. They're walking at the same time. And you're going to get into that groove. And then it's a dance. The hardest question I'm ever asked, because I don't have the answer to it, is, well, what is dance? And if you think, you know, people say, well, what is it? What is dance? Now, if you go to something like the Oxford English Dictionary, when you look at their definition of dance, it's all about rhythmic movement, often to music, you know, mainly to music. And there are patterns and they've got all these definitions. But I think that is dancing. Okay, so that is dancing. Well, when you watch somebody do the tango, you can see that that is dancing. But it's like the old philosophical question, isn't it? If a man's got a beard and you pluck one hair out, you know, does he still have a beard? And you go, well, yeah, he does. And you pluck another hair out, does he still have a beard? Yeah, he does. At what point doesn't he have a beard? Well, the same with dancing. If you take out the rhythmic element of dancing, is it still dancing? You go, well, yeah, it is. If you're not dancing to music, if you're doing it without music, is that still dancing? You go, well, yeah, it is. And then you keep getting that down. And then basically what dancing is, is life. You know, where there's a heartbeat, then that can be dancing. Just that smallest movement. We know that heartbeats in a rhythm. We know the brain functions in a rhythm. People walk in a rhythm. So if we're looking for some sort of rhythm and movement associated with the rhythm, the moving heart in a rhythm is dancing. So this is why we have to then say, okay, because people have an impression that dancing is the extreme version of dancing, it's a full facial beard, isn't it? That's what people think. You, you, you're not dancing unless you've got this full, full face of hair. But we know that even you can be dancing, even when nobody recognizes it as dancing. And this is why in corporate we call it movement. Yeah, yeah m- movement's like a, a gateway drug to dancing is probably yeah. another way to describe it. We'll let people in easily. And, <laughs> and I, I find that yeah. or the route to a big beard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I find that with my own work when I teach people anything in that sort of creative space where there's a risk, whether it be, you know, if I say I've done for years like team activities involving painting, but now I do it a lot with sort of teaching people to draw, so express their thoughts out as a business tool. But if you jump straight to the end point, people are terrified. So you need those little tiny little pieces that build that creative confidence on the way in and allow you then to feel comfortable in your own skin, comfortable that nobody will laugh or your internal voice won't laugh. So I love how, yeah, that's sort of that link, you know, movement first and then, you know, if dance is a byproduct of that, even better. Yeah. What I often do in my talks is I get people moving. If I do a big audience thing, I get people moving in while, while they're sitting down. So they might do this movement that they doesn't necessarily feel like dancing. And then we, we build it up and build it up. I guess it's like with you, Simon, you get them making a mark. And once somebody's made a mark, then they can make a second mark and a third mark. And then they then it can be create something. And we do that. Now, yeah. Speaking of, I'm going to jump in because speaking of seeing, of getting people to move, I met you, we were at a, a conference earlier this year before um, lockdown. And for a very large global car maker, and the people who were there were very sort of high up in the high end of the organisation. So, and they run car dealerships. So, you know, tough job, tough job. We all know that. So, they've got to know their numbers. They've got a pretty serious crew, I would say, pretty serious crew. But what you got them doing in a short amount of time 
I was just fascinated by your ability to glide and engage and getting these very, you know, very serious sort of, you know, 50-ish age men with arms folded, get them like flying around this room and having the best time. Like, is there a bit of a secret to that stuff? Because a lot of people present on stage and they would look at you and they would love to see a little bit of that craft in their own work. Uh Well, I guess there were two parts of it. There's because I I'm similar to the way that you describe those other people. I'm I don't look like a dancer. Well, when you think of a dancer, you think of somebody beautiful with a fantastic physique. They have an elegance when they walk out, you know. And I don't have that at all. I'm overweight. I'm old. I'm you know my body isn't what it used to be, and I look a bit shabby. So some people can relate to that. They look at me and they go, okay. So I'm not a threat. I think that's the first thing. I'm not a threat. I'm not going to humiliate anybody. And I'm prepared to dance and move myself. So I, I move very freely. And when I move very freely and authentically, then people are happy to move along with me most of the time, or all of the time, actually. And then the second thing is I get them, I suppose, I get people moving. And as soon as people agree to some level of movement with you, then they'll ratchet up and do something more with you. It's like a salesman when they make that first sale and they say, okay, you can buy this thing for £10. And you go, oh, yeah, okay. Okay, I'll buy that for £10. And before you know it, you've spent £1,000. You know, on, on a, so they keep ratcheting you up and you keep going, oh, okay, oh, yeah, okay, 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 okay. And you can do the same with movement. So what I normally do, I get people just to shake their hands. And I say, okay, can you just shake your hands for me? Just shake your hands. And I wait till everyone's shaking. I, I look around the room and I wait till everyone's shaking their hands. And then, you know, because then they put their phones on the floor, that everything goes, and they're moving. And while they're moving, I then get them typically to slap their thighs twice and then clap their hands twice. And then they're suddenly going, oh, we're, we're, we're kind of dancing with, this is a rhythmic movement. And it doesn't hurt. And it's fine. And we're all doing it. And everyone's making a noise. But the other good thing is that nobody can see them. So, of course, if you're sitting in an auditorium, then if you stop making the noise, no, did you ever? We used to do this awful thing at school. I don't know whether you did it at school. <laughs> You're probably much too nice. But we used to do this thing at school where we'd all hum. All of us school kids, <laughs> we'd all hum. Um, and a teacher would go, Love it. Are you humming? No, no, miss. I'm not humming. No, no, I'm not humming at all. And the humming will continue. And then she'd go, You boy, you are you humming? And, everybody, and of course, everybody could stop humming one at a time, but the hum in the room would still continue. And the same with that when we get people moving and slapping and clapping their thighs in an auditorium. If they stop, the the sound in the the room continues. So they feel part of it. You know, it's not, I'm not getting one person to make a noise or to make a movement that everyone else is relying on that person to to create the atmosphere. So, yeah. Oh, and look, and if if you haven't uh, ever seen Peter, jump on to see some of his TED Talks, see what he does with an audience. And if you're in charge of any type of event, get this man in the room and watch that audience. Smiles, joy, laughter is absolutely, I, I can't rate it highly enough what I saw that day, Peter. So it was brilliant. Peter, uh, one of the things now, obviously, is it's quite nice to distill all of your wonderful insights and experiences and start to think about advice that people might sort of take from your whole philosophy of move to improve. And we just wanted to maybe sort of start to think about at an individual level, as teams in businesses, as organisations, but at, at an individual level, whether that's 
in the workplace or just at home or with family or whatever. What would you say is some of the advice you might give to people just as individuals in moving to improve? Yeah, to be aware of your movement and try to move in different ways. So try to broaden your movement repertoire and move. We are terrible. We live sedentary lives, most of us. We walk to work or we get the train to work, or we drive to work. We're very, very, very sedentary. So my advice is you know, start to experiment with your own movement. Think about the range of movements in your body can do and try to broaden the repertoire of movement. Because when you do change your movements, it does change a whole range of things. It changes your social dynamic. It changes your thinking and problem solving. It changes your emotions. It changes you physically. And all those things, those human experiences, are at the heart of everything we do. Now, look, we're a loosely based business podcast or a not so serious business podcast, we like to call ourselves. So thinking in within teams, within organizations, specifically a corporate organization, what are some ways to bring the mantra of move to improve into a great functioning team? Look, it might be around, you know, collaborating, communicating, I know, bring the best out of each other. What are, your, what are your top tips for teams and bring this mantra into the way they operate? Yeah, well, the top tip for those teams is, is you won't be surprised for me to say to move together. I've done some work with creative teams thinking about, but the most important thing is for all of these things is to understand the meaning behind the movement. So first of all, to work out what problem you're trying to solve. And think critically about that. So you have to think about what the actual problem is first. And then we can use movement to start to to solve that problem. If you just went randomly and said, right, everybody, we're going to move today. Right, everyone, let's put on some music and we're going to boogie. Then, of course, very, very quickly, people would go, yeah, come on. This isn't (laughs) what's the point of this. It's pointless. And it would be pointless. So you have to understand the meaning. So the work we've done, for instance, we work with a a very famous creative company and they they had a new team. And they had some dynamic issues in the team with people, power, and da, 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 da. I wanted to use dance with them to help them bond together and to be more creative together. And so it's understanding what the problem is and then bringing in movement to try and solve those problems. You might have a team where people are get really stressed or you might, you might have a situation where the anxiety within the team is so great that people can no longer function anymore because they're anxious about their abilities to achieve certain goals. Perhaps it's the case that people don't know what the goals are. We might might use movement in terms of leadership, understanding the dynamic power balances between people. There was an interesting, sometimes we can use dance as a way of exploring some issues between people. So once I was working with a couple and I taught them both to dance and the dance is called the Gay Gordons and it's a Scottish country dance, the Cayley dance. And the idea is it's you've got the two people are holding hands, but in a kind of fairly unique way. And they walk forwards and then they turn around and then they walk backwards for four steps and they walk forwards for four steps. Then they both turn around and walk backwards for four steps while they're holding hands. It's quite complicated. And then one of them spins under the arm of the other and they gallop around the room or polka rather. And anyway, that's largely irrelevant, all of that. But the point was this couple couldn't learn it. They couldn't learn the dance. And so I taught the man the dance when I was working with him, and he could do it perfectly. I taught the woman the dance. She could do the dance perfectly. It was perfect, both of them, perfect. And they put them both together again, and they couldn't do it together. So they could do these things. And what was happening was that one of them 
wouldn't allow the other person to lead and they wouldn't allow themselves to follow and they wouldn't give them signals. They wouldn't read the signals that the others were giving about when to slow down, about when to speed up. And it was chaotic. Now, of course, we can use movement in this way to look at dynamics between members of teams to see who is blocking in a relationship, in a dynamic work-based relationship, who always expects to be the leader and to be followed by everybody else. You know, who are the people that almost in a sabotage way won't cooperate with everybody else? You know, what point are they trying to make by that lack of cooperation, that, mm -hmm. that digging their heels in and not working? So these real world, what we can sometimes do is through using movement with groups, we can either spot those imbalances and we can spot the resistances in the group. But also, we can use that as a model sometimes to demonstrate the types of behavior that we see. I mean, we might use something, you know, years ago, I used to use something called forum theater with management training groups and using forum theater to demonstrate relationship dynamics and demonstrate behaviors. Of course, the more, more people become familiar with those kind of techniques, they're less likely to engage with them on, in training sessions. So when we introduce movement-based forum theater type elements where we're highlighting dynamic relationships between people and thinking about ways to change those, then we can use movement in those settings. So yeah, we can use movement a lot in business and organizational settings to demonstrate those things. Your story, Peter, just quickly around relationships. My wife and I spent a month in Cuba uh, many moons ago when we were traveling the world and had no responsibilities, which was lovely. And obviously we learned salsa dancing. And the instructors kept saying to my wife, no, you have to let him lead. Like she wouldn't uh, yeah. in uh, salsa. We kept mucking it up. And she said, no, he leads, he leads, he leads. So she was quite feisty and she wanted to run the show only, you know, in the dance. So no, no, no bigger lessons there. But I remember this thing about this dynamic of, no, you have to be led and lead and that type of thing as well. When people dance, it is literally like it's a window into their soul. It's a window into their relationships. So movement gives us a view of relationship dynamics that we sometimes find otherwise see it, find it hard to see. Hey, Peter, we've got one more thought experiment before we start to wrap up. We've got some questions from genuine listeners. What, real like, questions? Ones you guys yeah. didn't make up and you, you didn't make them up and say this we is from Mary. We absolutely did not make these up. These are from people okay. from, you know, Tunbridge Wells and all over and Australia as well, of course. If you could be an agony uncle for us, just for a moment, Peter, there are um, some real uh, hard-hitting questions here. But look, the first one is, I started dancing in a job interview and I haven't heard back. What have I done wrong and do you have any advice? Yeah. Well, well, maybe that was just the, you know, the wrong organization for you. Maybe you were right, they were wrong. If you dance in a job interview and you don't hear back from them, you know you had a lucky escape. All right. Well done. I like that. Now, my question, this is from Sarah in Bondi. My seven-year-old son has been suspended from school and I have a meet-up with the principal for the next steps tomorrow. When is it okay to start dancing? Okay. As you're in the waiting room, wait, waiting to go to see the headmaster, uh, you and your son should bond together by dancing. So I, I would suggest that given that you're in Bondi, or maybe it's, oh, maybe, do you do, obviously you know about the haka, the war dance. 
if you're being combative with the headmaster, then perhaps you and your son in the waiting area should bend your knees, get a low center of gravity and start slapping those thighs and, and feeling the energy of the haka or something similar. Obviously, you may not want to do the haka, but I would start dancing in the waiting room because that would intimidate the hell out of the, the headmaster. And then as he opens the door, I'd strut in. Note that Peter's strutting now. So. <laughs> I'm strutting. And then you and your son could just sit in chairs looking at the headmaster and just get the finger clicks going. Have a rhythm in your head and just move those shoulders. <laughs> this is good stuff. I've got, I've got another one here. This is Jeff. This is Jeff. He's in Dudley near Birmingham. He's saying he's responsible for project managing the new rail link between London and Birmingham. What dance should I do to help me while I solve the mathematical calculations? It's not going well at the moment. Please help. Well, if it's the mathematical calculations that, that are wrong, I mean, I'm guessing there, if it's just procedural, then I think doing something, we need a fairly structured dance, but he probably needs to think differently. If the mathematical calculations aren't quite working out, he's obviously, he's a, I do the Charleston because I think the Charleston <laughs> has got this marvellous bit between structured movement. But once you've got the structure in the Charleston, you can start to embellish it. And then he can start to embellish the numbers. Because let's face it, with, with, the, with the railways, I mean, the numbers, they only have to be approximately, right, don't they? And, uh, <laughs> it's off the scale. That's it. <laughs> yeah. No, no, but really, I think he, if he was to do the Charleston and then embellish the Charleston, I think that would help his processing. Okay, now I have one more. If I were to be mugged, what would be the best dance to defend myself slash scare off the muggers and escape? Now, this is from Stuart from Barnsley. Well, Stuart from Barnsley, I would go for kung fu fighting. And if you learn that routine, I would, <laughs> I would YouTube the song Kung Fu. Everybody was kung fu fighting. And there's a dance routine that goes along with that. And I think if you were to learn that, then that would be a great way to ward off a mugger. Uh, of course, the more serious answer would be something like capoeira, because, of course, capoeira came from a dance form. And so the relationship between capoeira and dancing is really, really, really close. And, of course, that's a martial art. So if you're really serious about this, which I hope you are, if you're really, really serious, then capoeira is the dance for you to learn. If you're not quite as serious, then everybody was kung fu fighting should do just as well. Now, we're building the Occupational Philosopher's Manigesto, which builds on our manifesto of being a great occupational philosopher. What one thing from all your learning do you think should be included on our manigesto? Well, I think boogie boxes. Every office space should have a boogie box. It should be a health and safety requirement that, it's in the, in the way that organizations have to provide toilet facilities, they should also have to provide a boogie box. Actually, I mean, in all seriousness, introducing a boogie box into organizations would change a lot of the human experiences for, to make them more positive. It would improve social interaction. It would improve thinking and problem solving. It would improve people's emotional expression, their mood, and it would change people physically. We want our workforce to live as long as possible, to be as healthy as possible, to be as, as thinking creatively as possible, and we want people to bond. And a boogie box would solve all of those problems. It's, I mean, it's really interesting, Peter, that, uh, of course, they had 
you know, we, we saw a huge number of clients of ours as well who, who went to new design of offices and they said, open plan, we're going to go and we're going to have spaces for collaboration. We're going to have spaces for concentration. It's almost just building off of that, isn't it? It's creating zones within office yeah. space that provide certain benefits to aid well-being as well as the work to be done. It is, but it and it becomes, I know the, the boogie place would be an explicit place. I mean, it'd be a very obvious place. But very often when you have those things, like here's a space for collaboration, here's a space for creativity, then people don't end up using them for those purposes because you feel a bit self-conscious going into the collaboration space. It feels a bit sad. If, if you buy yourself, yeah. Yeah, 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 and you've got to sit there, nobody comes and talks to you, and you're sat there thinking, oh, what do I do now? But, of course, if we can enculturate movement into an organization, then, of course, you get those things for free. So I think, yeah. But it is, people are thinking about, they, they, they want to be able to change the culture of an organization by changing the layout of the space. But there are, yeah, I, I think having a boogie box would be a good improvement. I think we're going to start drawing to a close, are we, Simon? Yeah, I think so. So, Peter, what are you up to next? What's next on the project list? Well, um, so what's next on the project list? There, there are three things on the project list. So one of them is converting, because I can't travel around the world to give keynotes, and then we're now making a whole set of pre-recorded keynotes that, we're, that I'm creating that. So I'm trying to create those. The second thing is we've got something called the Movement in Practice Academy. So I run a whole range of online courses for people looking at the psychology of movement, trying to understand how we can learn about movement and apply it in business, education, or in, in healthcare. And then the third project we're currently working on is a project on movement for mental health. So again, creating a set of dance-based resources that people with different mental health conditions can use as part of a prescribed set of movements for them that they can take like a dose of movement for use in their own homes. And we're currently going through clinical trials of that at the moment. And so those are the three things. Where's best to connect with you if people want to catch up with more of what you're doing? Well, people can look on my website, so peterlovett.com, or they can follow me on Twitter or Instagram, which is both Dr. Peter Lovett. Now, look, Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on our show. I can see why the ear pods are so important because you move so much. You couldn't be in front of a microphone because your head doesn't stop head and body and the flow you have. You're an absolute embodiment of the things that you speak about, which is great to see. So, look, thank you so much for giving up your time and giving us your energy and part of your evening in the UK and for joining John and I on The Occupational Philosophers. Well, thank you both for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure to be on your show. And it's been lovely chatting with both of you, John and Simon. And I hope one day we can do it again, or at least we can have a boogie in the same room. (laughs) I look forward to a Mexican standoff, Peter. So, Simon, I think we just have to say a massive thanks again to Peter, our guest. What an absolute pleasure. And the, the passion and energy he brought to our conversation, and he was moving the whole time, so he, he did exactly what he was talking about as well. He has brought the words shimmy and groovy into my daily lexicon. <laughs> Which can't be a bad thing. 
So we like to talk about maybe some of the key things that stood out for us, things we've learned. What about you, Simon? What have you taken away from today's session? I've got three points. Number one is vary your movement. Like I, you know, that the piece around we need to move every certain amount of minutes we're at our desk, which I follow wholeheartedly, but generally do the same thing. So I'm going to be a little bit more fluid and a little bit more creative and energetic with my movement. Think around number two, think around the movement culture in your organization. So everything from how often you take breaks, how sedentary you might be, what you maybe when you're having a meeting, does everyone need to be sitting down? So just even on a very basic level, think around changing the movement culture in your organization and just revisiting. We're all born to do this stuff. Like it's in our blood. Like dancing is a natural human form of expression and movement. So, you know, suck it up and just try something and ignore that nasty voice which says you shouldn't because you're too old or uncoordinated or someone's looking like just just let loose and see what happens yeah what about you john what were your takeaways well i think like you're saying there's dance first think later was one of peter's one as well wasn't it which i i think that's definite that's a definite one to live by um for me personally i was very taken by his tips on how to revise with my son and bringing movement into that, you know, five-minute breaks and thinking about whether he's trying to work on mathematical convergent-type problems or he's trying to think more creatively and, and divergently around, you know, English literature revision and things like that, and then vary the movement accordingly. So that was really interesting. So there's something for me to try straight away. Then I was really taken by the work that Peter was talking about with teams, where he was talking about how you can use movement and dance, particularly movement, just to really highlight dynamics and relationships within teams and how they work together. If you observe them in interacting, you can see who leads, who follows, who blocks, who gives, who takes. And that's really interesting that you can just have that movement serve as a metaphor for how healthy a team is working together. And then the final one, I guess, is... I need to get my clothes dusted down and start break dancing so that I can participate in the 2024 Olympics. <laughs> that's that's me. That's a new career right there. Well, they do have the senior Olympics that day or something, so that might be that might be everything uh, senior for me. Senior at Wimbledon, senior break dancing. Most people have dropped out by now. So, look, John, what do we want people to do? We want them, obviously, to listen and subscribe and to rate the show. That's always good. So if you want to give it five stars, four stars, even six stars, it's up to you, but that'd be great. And, yeah, just tell your friends. Get them to uh, join us and join in. And you can also head over to our website, occupationalphilosophers.com, where you can download our Tame Your Ogre Guide, which is the essential guide to being the creative beast that you were born to be. And in the meantime, stay curious, make stuff, and play more. Now, John, it's uh, interesting. We used to laugh at my mum telling us to break dance out our problems, implying we're in big, bad gangs. Is that serious? No, well, no, yeah, she, well, she was, <laughs> but we weren't in the gang, so I... thought I, you were doing an episode of West Side Story or something. I know, anyway, I kept saying, Mum, I'm not in a gang and I'm not in any fight. So.